So we are going to continue in the book of Mark today. Mark chapter 7. Um, so we, we, like, uh, we like going through whole books together, and so we have had the book of Mark as kind of our central point for, uh, I think, the end of 2019 into 2020. And we are in uh, Mark chapter 7 is where we are now. We, we finished up Mark chapter 6 last week, where we saw... Um, all the amazing things that Jesus has promised to do and will do for His people. Uh, and now we're going to transition into Mark chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible with you, you should see a blue one in the pew back in front of you. Uh, go ahead and open that one up with us. Mark chapter 7. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Let's open up the Word of God together. Okay. We are going to talk about tradition today. we going to talk about tradition today. Uh, one of my favorite traditions, anytime I gather with my family back in Odessa, Missouri, uh, my favorite tradition is that my mom bakes the best chocolate pie you've ever tasted in your life. Uh, it's just fabulous. It's my favorite thing in the world. And so that's her tradition. And so my tradition is to see how much of that pie I can eat before anyone has a chance to take a bite. You know, I'd want to scarf that thing down. Everybody knows that's Jordan's. Sometimes she'll bake a family pie and a Jordan pie. Those are joyous occasions for me. That's joyful. Um, that's one of our traditions. Uh, another tradition that comes to my mind as a Chiefs fan, if you've been at Arrowhead Stadium, you know this tradition. After the, when the Star Spangled Banner is being sung at the very end, and the home of the Chiefs. A few of us know that. That's one of the traditions. Okay, I enjoy that. It kind of gives you a little tingle in the back of your neck when you hear that. Um, during the Super Bowl, if you listened real close to the, to, to the Star Spangled Banner at the end, you heard the Chiefs being said, that's why we won, I think. And so, uh, another tradition we all talk about, uh, is your family a Christmas Eve family or a Christmas morning family? Do you know what I mean? Do you open, we got a both over here? Oh, that might be the way to do it. So my family, very strict Christmas morning, okay? Very strict Christmas morning. Mallory's family, they like to, they're wamby-pamby with presents. They'll open Christmas Eve. How crazy is that? Who opens Christmas Eve? Oh no, a bunch of sinners. Okay, and the, so the rest of us are holy, God-fearing people. No, of course not. But, it, but it, we, we love traditions. Traditions can be an exceptionally good thing. It could bring us joy. It could tie us together. It could help us remember the past and respect the past, all those things. But traditions can also be exceptionally bad things. And for Christians, traditions can take the place of the Word of God. For Christians, traditions can fog the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to read about today. Let's open up Mark chapter 7. So that's big number 7. Let's talk about traditions today. It goes like this. Now, when the Pharisees gathered around Him, gathered to Him, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of His disciples ate with hands that were defiled. That is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they 
come from the marketplace. They do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah the prophet prophesy of you hypocrites, as is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. Okay. So, What's, what's the scene here? Now you'll remember last week we saw this incredible uh, miracle performed by Jesus, the Son of God, second person of the Trinity. He multiplied the bread and the fish. Five little crackers of bread, little bitty salted fish, and He fed twenty to 25,000 people just from His hands. What an incredible thing. And He split everybody up. They thought they were going to be an army. They were riled up. They were going to make Him king by force. He was at the, he's at the top of his popularity. And then we see that Jesus doesn't care anything about earthly kingdoms. He, he's all about His heavenly kingdom. His heavenly kingship. Which is higher than any earthly kingship. And so Jesus flees up the mountain from this army of people. And so Jesus' popularity is at its highest. And so if you are Jesus' spiritual enemies, if you are the Pharisees, who are kind of the preachers and teachers and they are the religious elite of the Jewish people. If you are the Pharisees or the scribes, the scribes are the one who taught the Word of God and the traditions of the elders. If you are that group of people and you're hearing that this guy Jesus has raised an army or He didn't raise an army, but He fed 20,000, 25,000 people and this, His fame is going out all over the country, you are going to come and you are going to try to figure out who this guy is. And the attitude of the Pharisees and the scribes that we see all throughout the Gospel is we don't necessarily want to test and see what this guy is. We want to test him to see him fail. So we can call him out for being a phony. And so these men, the scribes and the Pharisees, who would be considered on the outside upstanding citizens of Israel. Those were the guys when they walked down the street, you'd tell your son, that's who you want to be like when you grow up. 
And they come and they test Jesus. They're trying to figure out who this guy is, what he's doing. And really what they're trying to do is try to find what he's doing wrong. And they slip in and they see his disciples. They see them eating with defiled hands. With unwashed hands. Now, they're not worried about COVID, are they? Now wash your hands, right? That's not what they're worried about. And they're not talking about these fishermen and tax collectors. These guys just don't know anything about hygiene, and so they have grubby hands, and they're going to eat. No, they're not talk- they probably wash their hands like we do before they eat. What the scribes and the Pharisees were talking about was that they were examining these disciples, these followers of Jesus. And these men were not ritually cleaning their hands. See, the Pharisees and the scribes held to this massive system called the tradition of the elders. So Jesus said, you you hold to the traditions of the elders over the Word of God. The traditions of the elders. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes had the Word of God. They more than likely had most, if not all, the Word of God memorized. But it didn't go quite far enough for them. So over the centuries before Jesus and the centuries after Jesus' life and resurrection, these religious leaders thought about, taught about, and wrote about how they thought every good religious person should act. And so, although the Word of God has the law of God and spells out much of what we need to do in our lives when it comes to God, especially for the people of Israel, although the Word of God spells that out, the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders and the elders, their traditions said, we need to set up a fence around this to make sure that nobody breaks the law of God. We're going to make our own laws that go out further this way. We're going to make sure everybody knows what good a good person really looks like. The Word of God doesn't go far enough for them. So they built this tradition that says, okay, God says honor the Sabbath and rest during the Sabbath. But can you boil an egg? Does that work? And so the elders got together and they said, no, you can't, you can't boil an egg. That's work. We're going to write this down. And if you boil an egg and we find out about it, we're going to come get you. Can you spit in the dirt on the Sabbath? Well, let's think about that for a century or two. Let's write about that. Let's argue about that. You know, if I spit in the dirt on the Sabbath, somebody might be tempted to come and grab that now mud and mix it and mash it and and work on it and make bricks. So no, you can't spit in the dirt on the Sabbath. You can spit on a rock, that's okay, but not the dirt. These are the kind of things that the tradition of the elders talked about. Okay, the Word of God tells the people of Israel to separate yourselves from the, from the people around you. God is going to give you good animals and bad animals. And there are some good insects and bad insects. Well, what if you're baking bread and a bad insect happens to fly its way into the oven? Does the bread then become defiled? And what if you're storing jars of water under the oven? 
and that bug is flying around in there, does the water become defiled? You'd hate to eat defiled bread. Who knows? God might strike you down if you take a bite of my peanut butter and jelly sandwich and the wrong bug has been in my oven. These are the kind of things they're talking about. And so within this written and oral tradition of the elders, talking about washing hands, within this written and oral tradition of the elders, there were 30 chapters on the ritual cleaning of pots and pans. That's why Mark says they had all these rules about things like pots, cleaning pots and pans and cleaning the couches that you sit on to eat. There was one whole volume in the tradition of the elders on proper ways to wash your hands. A whole book on how God wants you to wash your hands. And the idea was that God's Word doesn't go far enough. It's not sufficient for us. It's not enough for us to know God and know what He requires of us. We need to build a fence around it. We need to make sure everyone is behaving. And you can do that in a very pompous and religious way. Well, I just really care about God's Word, don't you? But what are they really doing? They're really setting up this system in which I can earn favor with God. Can we earn favor with God? They're really setting up the system where I can make sure that I know that I'm better than you. And ultimately, this tradition of the elders becomes equal to the Word of God. And eventually, this tradition even surpassed the Word of God in importance to the religious Jews. The Jerusalem Talmud says this. The Talmud is part of this tradition of the elders. says this, The words of the scribes are more lovely than the words of the law. The word of the law is what? It's this. The word of the law is, the law is what Moses wrote. Isn't that amazing? These traditions even became explicitly taught that if you follow what we are teaching you, yeah, it's not in here, but if you follow this extra stuff, you will be right with God. That's what they taught. A rabbi in the elder tradition writes this, whoever has his abode, has his house in the land of Israel, and eats his food with washed hands, may rest assured that he shall receive eternal life. We know that's not true. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. And what is a lamer work than washing your hands? Not a result of works. Well, maybe that's just the Old Testament. Maybe that's how the Old Testament people were saved. Maybe they were saved by washing hands and then Jesus came and it's better. Well, it is better now that we are under the new covenant. That is much better. But no, the people of Israel were saved in the same way that you are now. By grace through faith. Romans 4, 3-5. For what does the Scripture say? Says Paul. Abraham believed God 
and it was counted to him as righteousness. Faith is counted as righteousness. That's how we're saved. That's how we're righteous before God. And so, of course Jesus has this understanding. He's the one who saves us. He's the one of, of, in whom we have our faith. And so Jesus comes and He nails these guys. He says, it is you. Now, don't forget, these are the same type of people who are going to have Him crucified by the Romans. It is you, Isaiah the prophet prophesied, when he said this, this people, you Pharisees and scribes, honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. In vain you do worship me, teaching the doct- as doctrines the commandments of men. How do you think they liked hearing that? How do you think they like hearing that? Pharisees, your problem is you are doing all these outward things, washing your hands like that, not spitting in the dirt, all these things expecting to be right with God. But He doesn't want just your lips. He wants your heart. And we know this. They recited this all the time. Jesus tells us in Matthew 22, He talks to the Pharisees and one of them to test Him says, what's the most important law? What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great this is a great first commandment and the second is like it you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands, loving God with all you are and loving your neighbor as yourself, on these two commands depend the whole law and the prophets. God wants our heart so he says you give lip service and your heart is far from God, your worship is empty you teach your traditions as the doctrine of God and then he gives them an example here's an example for you the law of God commands you to honor respect and love your mom and dad what this means is in old age they didn't have social security didn't have a retirement plan in your old in their old age you financially support them But in the tradition of the elders, you can declare your wealth Corbin. You could say, I'm going to give, I'm going to, my wealth is reserved for God. Sorry, mom and dad. I know you can barely eat, but all this wealth that I've got, I'm going to be holy and pious and give lip service, and I'm going to declare it Corbin to God. Now we might think, well, maybe he just really loves God. I mean, sad about his parents, but maybe that's a, isn't that a higher calling than taking care of your parents? Well, no. First of all, no. Secondly, the rest of the tradition of the elders when it comes to Corbin says this, you can declare everything Corbin and your parents can't expect you to support them, but guess what? You can declare it Corbin and you don't have to give it to the temple really anytime. You can keep it in your bank. And you can declare your wealth Corbin, and that means you can really still spend it any way you want. Nobody will think twice about it. And you can declare it Corbin and wait for your parents to die, and then you could take your oath back, and there's nothing wrong with that.
And then even on the flip side, maybe I get really mad at my mom and dad. Maybe I get mad at my mom and dad and I say, hey, guess what? You're going to treat me like this? All my stuff is Corbin. Instead of coming to this young man and saying, hey, let's think through this. Let's think about what the law says. Let's think about how the greatest commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. Let's think about the greatest commandment uh, is love God and love others. Let's think about how Moses tells us to honor your father. Instead of doing that, they say, well, it's Corbin. What are we going to do? So, for us in the church, the question is, is all tradition bad? How does tradition relate to the law of God? And what does sinful tradition look like? So, let's talk for a moment about the law of God versus godly tradition versus traditionalism. Law of God versus godly tradition versus traditional to traditionalism. Okay? Law of God. God commanded actions and beliefs that are helpful, wise, good, and necessary to be right with God. That's what this is. Actions and beliefs that are helpful, wise, good, and necessary to be right with God. Ten Commandments. Universal. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not commit adultery. Honor your father and your mother. Do not have, make yourself idols. Do not covet. Universal. And all of this, again, summed up like this. Love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what this says. That's the point of the law. Now, if, if you've been in church a long time, I hope you think of this. You're going, wait a minute. You said that the law is necessary to be right with God. It makes me a little uncomfortable because I, I know we're right by faith in Jesus Christ. That's right. That if you lived a life in perfect obedience to the law of God, you would be accepted by God outside of Jesus Christ. Now what's the problem with that? Can you live a life perfect under the law of God? No. In fact, Paul says it this way, the law of God is like our guardian. It points us to Jesus. It's a good thing. The law of God is a good thing. It shows us what righteousness is. However, what it does for us now, most of all, is show us that we desperately need a Savior. And so what happens? So Jesus comes. He, he is totally obedient under the law of God. Never breaks the law. The perfectly righteous man. And he dies on the cross and raises again. He says, anyone who puts faith in me, my righteousness is credited to you. And so that's how you and I can stand under the law of God and we are declared righteous even though we still sin. That's the law of God. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. And so the consequence of the law of God is that we learn we are sinners who need Jesus. And then after we are saved, we joyfully pursue obedience by the empowering of the Holy Spirit and in thankfulness to what Jesus has done. That's our relationship to the law. What is the law of God founded on? It's founded on the Word of God. He reveals Himself to us through the Word. How long is the Word of God? How long does it apply to us? It's eternal. It's eternal. So that's the law of God. Let's talk about godly tradition. 
Godly tradition is man-made actions and beliefs that can be helpful, wise, and good, but are not necessary to be right with God. Are you with me? Godly tradition are man-made actions. Law of God is God-made actions and beliefs. Man-made actions and beliefs that can be helpful, can be helpful, wise, and good, but are not necessary to be right with God. What are some of these traditions in church? Order of worship? Where do we put the offering? Where do we put the singing? You can get, people can get fired up over that. That's tradition. Is that good? Oh, those are good things, right? We need to have a good order of worship. Paul says everything should be orderly. That's a good thing. How about, what are some other examples of godly tradition? How about the type of songs we sing? Those are traditions. Those can be good. They can be bad. They can be good. They're man-made. Those are traditions. How about what instruments we use? That's a tradition. Those are man-made. They can be good. They can be bad. We used to, a long time ago, we used to fight over whether or not there should be any kind of instruments in church. And then the argument was, well, we can have an organ. Then it was, well, can we have a piano? And then it was, can we have, have a guitar? And then it was, can we have drums? And it just keeps going on. Those are traditions. Those are godly traditions. How we sing, how we worship can be good. The time we, we gather... We switched all that up, didn't we? Now we're at 9 and 11 o'clock. Is there some law of God about worshiping at 1045? No. It's a godly tradition. We want to meet and we want to do it at the best time that we can. All these things are founded on human will and understanding, hopefully informed by the principles of the Word of God. But these traditions are not founded by God. How long do they last? What's their lifetime? Godly traditions last as long as they are useful for the Gospel. They can be replaced by new actions and beliefs that are determined to be better suited at this time for Gospel presentation. Are you with me? When do we move on from a godly tradition? When we determine that there's a, there's a better way to present the Gospel to our community at our time. This falls into that place where Paul says, I become all things to all men, so by grace of God I might see some saved. This is, falls into where Paul says, I have rights as an apostle, but I lay them down for the good of the Gospel. This is where Paul says, if eating meat causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again. This applies to godly tradition. For instance, godly tradition, we moved on, and now we have air conditioning. Are you excited about that? If you know church, that was probably an argument, wasn't it? We're going to make it too easy for us in church. I'm glad. I'm sweating like a pig up here already. I'm glad there's air conditioning. Microphones. Sunday school. Wednesday night service. Wednesday night service used to always be at 6.30. You remember that? Do you ever ask yourself where that came from? What well, it came from when there was electricity. What was the first building that got electricity? The church. They'd have one light bulb hanging from the ceiling. So everybody gathered on Wednesday night at 6.30, and that's when they did it. 
They just kind of come to godly tradition. It's a good thing. But now we have electricity. Everybody has electricity. We can meet other nights, and that's okay. That's okay. God, love God, godly tradition, traditionalism. Traditionalism is man-made actions or man-made actions and beliefs that can be helpful, wise, and good and are called necessary to be right with God. Do you see the difference? Traditionalism says, here's something that we've been doing. It is from man, and this is necessary to be right with God. Now, if, you're, if you've been in church a long time, you know that nobody, if you've been in church a long time, you're probably not going to stand up and say, hey, this tradition that I made is necessary to be right with God. You're probably not going to say that. You know better than that. But can we act like that? Can we give off the impression that these man-made things are necessary to be right with God by the way we treat people? Sure we can. What are some of these traditionalism traps? Politics. Politics is traditionalism and is rampant in the church. In particular, well, for every church, but conservative Christians, this is a trap. Where we say, and I've heard this said, I have it etched into my memory. You can't vote Democrat and go to heaven. And we like to chuckle about that, right? This young lady, 30s, 40s, was serious. What is that? That's traditionalism. That says this tradition of man that is a Republican party is necessary to be right with God. How about lifestyle? Sweet little old lady, after preaching grace and after preaching that it doesn't matter what we look like, she came up to me after the sermon and she says, you keep preaching stuff like that, mister. We're going to have somebody here who drives a motorcycle. Boy, I wanted to buy a motorcycle that night. I tried to get Mallory to let me buy a motorcycle next day. But went, what is that? Well, that's traditionalism. That's traditionalism. Or the sweet guy who, when we got a drummer, in, and none of these happen in this church, thankfully, but when we got a drummer in our church, Tyler, this is not about you, when we got a drummer in church, a um, guy pulled me aside right before I got up to preach and said, you get those drums off the stage. Those are for honky-tonk bars. And I said, what about the guitar? Oh, guitar is fine. But get those drums off the stage. What is that? That's traditionalism. Traditionalism is founded on human will informed by desires and preferences of the culture. What, how long do they last? Well, they are falsely claimed to be eternal. I had another old boy tell me, I promised my grandfather nothing would change in this church. What's the consequence of traditionalism in church or in our lives? At best, the gospel is dimmed and hard to find. At worst, another gospel is preached. The gospel is not just preached from the pulpit. The gospel is preached on how the people of God talk and how they love each other. Traditional Traditionalism places man-made barriers between the gospel and the lost. 
and man-made barriers between church family. And here's the thing. We don't need to put barriers up. The Gospel is offensive enough on its own, isn't it? What are the characteristics of traditionalism that we see in this passage? Jesus says you are intermingling tradition with the Word of God. Verse 7, teaching as doctrine the commandments of God, of men. Teaching as doctrine the commandments of men, excuse me. Verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Verse 9, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And they would say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We love the Word of God. How dare you say we leave it behind? We just want them to wash their hands to, pro- to protect the Word of God and so that they could be saved. To emphasize anything next to or over what the Word of God says is to diminish the Word of God itself. Anything that we elevate, either on purpose or accidentally, anything that we elevate equal to or above the Word of God diminishes the Word of God. It's so pure and so great. Anything we connect to it just diminishes it. It needs to stand on its own. Every hill we are willing to die on as Christians, every hill we're willing to be disunified about must be main and plain in Scripture. Or we risk traditionalism. Unity, unity, unity of almost anything, church unity. And that almost anything has to be something that's really clear and plain and big in here. If we're going to break apart, it's got to be clear. It's got to be clear in the Word of God. Sermons that don't mention the Word of God is not a sermon. I've seen a couple lately on YouTube railing about politics and about COVID and about all these things from the pulpit, never mentioning the Word of God. It's wasted time. The Word of God is our authority in faith and practice. It is the final authority. This is what we stand upon. When Paul tells Timothy, a young pastor, maybe my age, maybe a little older, maybe a little younger, and Timothy's going, ah, church is hard. And it is hard. It's hard 2,000 years ago. It's hard now. Church is hard, Paul. Help me. Paul says, okay, church is so hard. You know what you do? Preach the Word. The Word of God. That's what it's for. Preach the Word. Preach the Word, Paul. Paul tells Timothy, preach the Word, Timothy. He tells them again in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Traditions are breathed out by man. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness. The Word of God is profitable for teaching and correction. Tradition is not profitable for rebuke, correction, and training. It's not profitable. That's not, it's not going to work. What's another characteristics of, of traditionalism? An unhealthy emphasis on policing the actions of other people. The Pharisees and the scribes were seeking out Jesus and his disciples. They weren't there to, 
to take it all in and to learn from Jesus and see who he really was. They were there to police his actions according to their traditions. They were looking to bust him. See, traditionalism is based, are based on traditions that are so weak because they come from us that we feel like we have to defend them all the time. So I feel they're slipping through my hands. I feel like if you break the tradition, then this person will break the tradition, then this person will break the tradition, and all of a sudden my tradition that I hold so dearly is gone. That should tell us something about our traditions, that they're so flimsy that we have to defend them. What about the Word of God? I love how Spurgeon talks about the Word of God. He says, the Word of God is not something that you and I have to spend a lot of time worrying about defending. Do we defend? Yeah, we can defend the Word of God. How do we defend the Word of God? You preach it. That's something that's strong. For traditions, I've got to come around, I've got to sneak through, I've got to check out your, so what's in your fridge, I've got to look in your bushes, I've got to see what you're doing, I've got to hear, I've got to police you, I've got to listen in on your conversations because I've got to defend it. That's not the Word of God. What do we do with the Word of God? The Word of God is defended by preaching it, by letting it loose. Spurgeon says the Word of God is like a lion in a cage, and, a, and an army comes to defeat the lion. What do you do? Do I go out there and try to fight the guys? No. How do you defend the lion? You let him out of the cage, he'll defend himself. That's the Word of God. That's not flimsy. Boy, that'll do the trick. Traditionalists police, inspect, and fiercely defend their pet traditions. Biblical-based churches are filled with people with eyes half shut. You know what I mean? Listen, I don't, I'm not interested in what's in your fridge. Okay? We're not interested in getting in your bushes and peeking through your window. That's not something we want to do. We don't have the desire to inspect one another down to the atom. We don't need to inspect each other. We understand that correction, reproof, and training comes from preaching the Word of God. That's the best way to do it. Now let's be clear. If you go down and go down to the bar and get in a big bar fight and it's all over the news and it's hurting your family, we are required by God to come and to talk to you. But is that something we take joy in? No. That's something we have a broken heart about. That's something we have fear and trembling about. That's something to talk to you about something like this requires someone who doesn't want to do it. You know what I mean? We hold one another accountable, but in gospel churches, holding one another accountable has a long fuse. Traditionalism has a short fuse. Traditionalism says people were made for tradition rather than tradition being made for people. The Pharisees and the scribes believed that this crowd, these disciples, that Jesus was created so that they can fulfill this tradition. Jesus tells us this. They got mad at the disciples on the Sabbath. They're breaking the Sabbath. Jesus, what are you doing? Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The law of God 
and any tradition worth its salt was given to man for our benefit. The law of God in any godly tradition is given for our benefit. And that's this. To aid us in glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. Any tradition worth its salt is going to help us do that. And if it doesn't, why bother? Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Traditionalism aims to glorify ourselves and to enjoy our desires forever. Do you see the difference? Traditionalism, finally, is marked by a lack of grace and charity and empathy. Uh, yeah, he doesn't support his, his dying parents. He doesn't feed his dying parents. But hey, he comes to church. He doesn't support his parents. But hey, he washes his hands the right way. Biblical Christianity says the purpose of the law of God and the purpose of all of our traditions is to help us love God and love others. And if my traditions cause me to lose either one, they are from hell. If my traditions cause me to not love other people, they are idols. So, my friends, please be concerned about our words we use to one another on Facebook. My friends, let us not mock one another. Let us not hate one another. Let us not be harsh with one another. Let us not gossip about others. Let us not be divided about things like politics or wearing masks. What's the consequences of traditionalism in the life of the church? Vain worship. Vain worship. How'd you like that? Coming here and singing and it being empty. God not receiving it. Why? Traditionalism steals our heart and worship is a heart action. We worship in response to who God is. We know who God is through His law and through His Word. And when we dilute the Word by elevating tradition, we lose sight of who God is. And if we lose sight of who God is, we cannot worship. It's empty. It's just words. What's the consequence of traditionalism in the life of the church? Vain worship and destroying the next generation. Traditionalism destroys the next generation. Jesus said you have, you're making void the Word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. You've made void the Word, and you are handing a void Word down among your tradition to the next generation. You're teaching this. You're teaching as doctrines the commandments of God. They're teaching people to have a heart for tradition rather than a heart for God. That's what they're doing. So, as a parent, my goodness, this is convicting to me. What do my kids see their daddy's heart pursuing? Parents, grandparents, Sunday school teachers, neighbors, what are we teaching others by our passion for our traditions? What they be, see us being passionate about is what our children will elevate in their own lives. Are you with me, parents? Do they hear us 
being passionate, more being more passionate about politics than we are about the gospel? Do we have more conversations around the dinner table about our traditions and politics and how the world is falling apart and why the world is falling apart and why I'm angry at my work and why I love the Chiefs? Are they listening to that? Is that what they're hearing more than my passion for the gospel? Listen, church, we often decry that the next generation is not in church. Why aren't they in church? One of the reasons they're not in church is that they've heard their parents, they've heard their churches, their hearts, they're more passionate about things like politics and sports teams than they are about the Word of God and the Gospel. That's why our young people leave church. I'd leave a church like that. Let's not be a church like that. We confuse the gospel in the minds of those around us when we make tradition the central theme of our words and our passions. Let's end with this. How do we guard against traditionalism? I think some traditionalism comes from this. I don't know what's in here. Maybe... Maybe color of the carpet is in here. And that's why I get so fired up about it. Maybe the Republican Party or the Democratic Party is in here. And that's why I get so worked up about it. How do we guard against traditionalism? Know the Word. Know what's in there. Know what God is speaking. If we know what God is speaking, then we can start hearing, well, those voices are from people who are like dust. This is the Word of God. How do we know the Word of God? We sit under the preaching and teaching of the Word. Why do we spend 40-45 minutes on a sermon for a 100,000 reasons, and one of them being so we can discern what is traditionalism from what is the Word of God? And that takes time. That takes time on a Sunday morning. That takes time. That takes years of sitting under preaching and teaching like that. Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, listen to this, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. How do we guard against traditionalism? Parents, how do we make sure we're not passing on tradition as gospel to our children? Get the Word of God and give it to them over and over and over again. When we know the Word of God, we can recognize what traditionalism is. We can re- recognize what is from God. In Arkansas, I preached a sermon on racism. And I'll never forget this. We preached a passage about Moses marrying a black woman and his sister not thinking that that was a good idea. And God showing his hatred for racism and says, you like white skin so much? I'll give you white skin. He gave her leprosy. Preached that. And had this 35, 38-year-old woman come up to me after the sermon and go, that's the first time I've ever heard somebody say that interracial marriage is not sinful. 
That's not 50 years ago. That's not 20 years ago. Isn't that something? How, how does that happen? Well, that happens from being in churches that don't preach the Word of God. You preach the Word of God, people understand that that is a tradition from hell. And that that will be swallowed up in hell at the end of time. And God hates that. Being under the Word of God knows that God has made us in the church, Jews and Gentiles, they weren't getting along. Paul says, hey, get along because we are one new race in Jesus. And finally, how do we fight traditionalism? Have a healthy emphasis on your own sin and reciprocate the grace given to you. When somebody breaks our tradition, understand that, man, we have offended God. We have truly offended God. When I get offended by my traditions being broken, understand that I have offended God way worse than anybody could ever offend me. And He has shown me incredible grace by sending Jesus Christ that through faith I am saved, not through following tradition, not even through following the the Ten Commandments because I can't do that. That God's salvation is a free gift of grace, not earned through faith in what Jesus Christ has done. What grace. And if that's what He's given me, I need to give that to others.